Good morning, church. We will be in First uh, Samuel 16, um, verses 1 through 13. Don't want to get carried away here. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me with him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely that must be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Please be seated. If this is uh, the first time you're joining us, we are studying uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and uh, if you've never studied that book before, uh, 1 Samuel is actually connected to 2 Samuel. Uh, in fact, in uh, the original language, it's actually one book and not two. And uh, the, the climax of the story of Samuel is uh, this, this man, Saul, who's the first king of Israel, uh, he, he dies this bloody, violent death on top of a hill surrounded by his enemies. And, uh, and the question really that the editor of Samuel is, is asking us, the readers, is, is this the king that you want? Is this the king that you want, or, or is there a better king? Um, and and uh, the, the editor of Samuel really is pointing us to that better king. Um, the, the story kind of begins, uh, to go back a little bit, that the, the leaders of Israel, they come to uh, Samuel and they say, we want for you to appoint a king for us. 
And uh, in this moment, what they're doing is two things. One, they're, they're rejecting God as king over them. You see, they were a theocracy. They were a nation led by priests connecting them to God. They were a theocracy, but they're rejecting God as king over them, and instead they're choosing a man to be king over them. And so the second thing that they're doing is they're rejecting their identity. They didn't want to be God's people. They wanted a king like the nations around them. They wanted to be like the cultures and the civilizations around them. They wanted to, to reject God and to reject their identity as God's people. Well, uh, God uh, gave them what they want. God gave them a king after their own heart. And, uh, and he raises up this man named Saul. Now, uh, Saul was given every opportunity to succeed by God. Uh, God, in fact, loved Saul. He loved Saul. He, he went to the, to the work of redeeming Saul and his, his past. And over and over again, he showed Saul that he was with him and the presence was, was with him if, if Saul would just lean into him. He gave Saul every opportunity to succeed. But the problem is, is that Saul didn't fear God. He feared man. And out of a, a fear of man, he would do whatever it took to maintain power and maintain control, including disobeying God. And because of the disobedience of God, God rejects him as king. He takes away uh, the kingdom from his descendants, but then also takes the kingdom away from Saul himself. And God tells uh, Saul through Samuel, I'm going to raise up a king after my own heart. Saul was the king after the heart of the, the people of Israel, but now God is going to raise up a king after his own heart. And so this is what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It begins with, with Samuel. He's grieving uh, over the fact that Saul has turned out this way. Um, Samuel is the one who installed him as king, anointed him as king, uh, and, and believed in, in, in Saul to a certain degree. Uh, but, but Saul has, has failed miserably, and Samuel is grieving over this. And so God shows up, and he says, this isn't going to be the last word. We're, we're, we're going to go, and you're going to go, and you're going to anoint for me the king that I want. I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to find a man named Jesse, and it's going to be one of his sons. And, and Samuel's response to this is fear. He knows what kind of man Saul is. He knows that if, he, if Saul finds out that he's going to anoint another king, uh, Samuel's life is on the line. Uh, Saul, in, in an effort to, to maintain power and control, would, would certainly murder Samuel. And so uh, uh, he gets up and, and he goes. He's, he's given an alibi by God. God tells him, take a heifer with you and, uh, and offer a sacrifice there in Bethlehem. And use this as an opportunity to, to, to have the, the men of, uh, of Bethlehem come before you, and, and as they do, I'll identify the one who I want. And so this is what happens. He, he goes to Bethlehem, and the leaders of Bethlehem, as soon as they see him, are put on edge. Uh, there's a story that happens just before this where uh, there's a, a guy named Agag. He's a king of, uh, of the Amalekites, and, uh, and God told Saul to kill him. Saul didn't, and so Samuel does, and this, this old prophet priest guy takes a sword and hacks Agag into pieces and so this just happened and so the the people of Bethlehem are like have you come in peace right like there's an old guy but he can still slice and dice and so uh have you come in peace and and Samuel says yes I've I've come in peace I've come to offer a sacrifice and so I want you to 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 bring the men of Bethlehem before me and so one by one uh they do that and uh, Jesse comes before him and brings his, his his son Eliab Eliab is the 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 firstborn and and Samuel sees him and he sees a man who's tall and he's handsome and he's warrior like and Samuel's saying to himself this has got to be the guy Apparently, he's got a very short memory because Saul was also tall and handsome and warrior-like. And that's not what God wanted. And God's whispering in his ear like, you're looking at the outside, I'm looking at the inside. It's the heart of the man that matters. I'm looking at the heart. 
And so Eliab is, is uh, rejected, then Abinadab is, is rejected, and then uh, Shemaz is rejected. And, and one by one, seven sons of Jesse are all rejected by God. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, do you have any more sons somewhere? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one out in the field, but he's the runt. You, you don't really need to look at him. There's really nothing special or significant about this, this, this youngest boy of mine. And you can tell, like, uh, David's own dad doesn't really esteem him very highly. Um, he, he, you know that because he puts him out there in, in, in the pasture with the sheep. The, to be a shepherd was like the lowliest of low, right? It was, it was, it was the lowliest position you could possibly have in this, in this culture. It was for slaves and it was for servants and apparently it's for like, like the last son, right? It's for, it's for those guys who didn't do well on the ASVAB or scored low on the ACT. Like they, they, they don't really have a bright future ahead of them, so just put them out to pasture and keep them away from people who have a future going for themselves. His own dad doesn't even esteem him. And Samuel says, well, bring him in. And so there David comes and he stands before Samuel And here's the description uh, that we actually see of him. It says, now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, you and I would look at this and be like, this is complimentary. Beautiful eyes, handsome, right? Uh, To to Samuel, to to the readers of of this, this wasn't a compliment, okay? What was standing before Samuel is a boy who's probably somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15 years old, and, and what Samuel is seeing is he's seeing a kid that would probably do very well on a back-to-school ad, but not for being a king. Like, he's cute. Like, all right, cute kid. Kingly? No. He has a, he's a fairer complexion, and, 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 he, and he's got nice eyes, and he's, he's handsome. Cute kid, but, but he doesn't look very kingly. But God's saying, no, no, this, this is the one I want. And so... The Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for he, this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And so it was that God chose a king after his own heart. Saul was a king after the heart of the people. David was a king after the heart of God. And there's a difference. So we see uh, David is anointed. As I said, he's probably uh, very, very young. Uh, he doesn't take the throne until he's 30 years old, which means he's got about 15 to 20 years to wait 15 to 20 years to wait. So why would God anoint him so early on in his life? Why would God do this when, when he's not going to actually take the throne for so long? Well, a part of that is, is that it brings an end to Samuel's grief. Samuel dies before uh, uh, David is installed as king. And so his, his life gets to end on a high note. Like, yeah, I appointed Saul, but I appointed David. So, so, so he, is, he, he gets that. But, but it's also what God is going to use this 15 or 20 years to to draw out the heart of God that's in David and put it on display. He's gonna use this time to draw this heart out so that we can see what does it look like to have the heart of God. Uh, so the, the story, uh, this story ends. Uh, David goes back to the field. Samuel goes back to Ramah. Uh, but it's in verse 14 where we see God begin to draw out uh, his heart in David. So if you read with me, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now some of you might be looking at this and be saying, like, why would a good God send a spirit to torment somebody? That that may not jive with with what you think a good God would do, right? Uh, Some of you, you might have a translation that says an evil spirit from the Lord. That's that's not an accurate translation. It's, It's a harmful spirit, but 
it does come from God. God is sending a spiritual being to attack Saul's mental state of being. So you guys, why would a good God uh, do that? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a note. I think this is, uh, this is worth talking about. Um, I don't want to gloss over this, and so we're going to look at this. The, the reality is, is that many of us, we want a God um, of our own making. Um, we, we want a God who we, we choose to define and it, how he is and how he would act. And we never want a God who would do something harmful to somebody. We want, we want a God who brings us sunshine and rainbows and happiness. But the reality is, is that sometimes God brings pain. There's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to this. It's called the book of Job. In the beginning, a man named Satan, or a being named Satan stands before his God, and, and he's complaining that he doesn't have anybody to go after. And God says, well, how about my servant Job? God offers up Job, and Satan goes after him. And he takes away his material wealth, and he takes away his children and his health, and it gets to the point where his wife tells him, you should curse God and die. What a peach. And his response to her, chapter 2, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Why would we reach out and take the good things that God would give us? Why would we take blessing from his hand but refuse to take hardship and pain? God uh, reveals more about himself in Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. says, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We want a God who will only, only provide, only bring in blessing, but never bring in harm into our lives. But the reality is, is he, he does that at times. He does do that at times. And the response that you have to that is really critical. You choose one of two ways. You could either choose to believe that it's punishment or that it's discipline. You see, it's punishment or that's discipline. And I want you to know, if, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, it is not punishment. Because Christ has been punished for you. If you are in Christ, you need to know that the wrath of God against your sin, everything you've passed, done in the past, in the present, in the future, all of your sin was paid for by Jesus at the cross. The wrath of God towards your sin is done. It's gone. It's paid for. You are not being punished by God. And so when you understand and you see that, that there are hardships in life and there are consequences of living in a fallen world, but you need to know your cancer is not punishment. Your child uh, dying prematurely, it's not punishment. The loss that you experience in life is not punishment. God will spend 15 to 20 years bringing out the heart of God in David through nothing but hardship and pain at the hands of Saul. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Saul is being tormented by a spiritual being from God attacking his mental state. And he can do two things in response to this. He can turn to God, and seek help, and seek repentance, or he can harden his heart against God and turn the other way. And unfortunately, that's what he chooses. And then he'll spend a good amount of time passing that on to David. But God's spirit has left Saul. That's the important thing I want us to see here. Uh, and according to verse 13, the spirit of God now rests on David. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. 
And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, um, in chapter 16, we see one uh, story of how David and Saul meet. In chapter 17, we actually see a different story of how David and Saul meet. Um, This story in in, in chapter 16, there's somebody referencing David, and they're calling him a man of valor and a man of war. Um, David is not that yet. He's still a young man, okay? Uh, When David faces Goliath in the next chapter, uh, Goliath calls him a youth, defining his age to be between somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. So if you remember First and Second Samuel, they're, they're not written by one author. It's written by a, a bunch of authors, and it's compiled by one editor. But this editor takes these stories, and he puts them together, and he's not concerned about them being harmonious with each other. He's not concerned that they, all the stories fit and that all the details are in line. He lets them exist just intact the way that, that, that they are. And the truth is, he's not really worried about the timeline. But the fact is, David becomes a man of valor, a man of war. He does face down a giant named Goliath, and he does play the liar for King Saul. All the facts are there. And so that's not to be, uh, to be doubted. But back to the story. Saul is in need. God's invisible hand is at work to bring into Saul's life uh, David, uh, the very one who's going to one day replace him as king. So look at verses 19 through 23. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul went to Jesse, saying, Let David remain, (coughs) sent to Jesse, and saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. See, it's worth noting here that though God is the one bringing the pain, God is the one who's also bringing the relief to Saul. He's bringing the relief, and he's bringing it through David. I want us to, to, to see this really, really clearly. Don't, don't let the gravity of this just go by you. This is, this is huge. God is sending David to Saul to serve him. Many of us, if we were in David's position, we would see Saul as our enemy. David didn't see him that way. God is sending David to serve Saul of all people. I want us to see uh, three things in all of this. First, God did not send David to come to confront him. God did not send David to confront Saul. He didn't send David to attack Saul. He didn't send David to raise up an army and overthrow Saul. He didn't send David to confront him. He sent him to serve him. The second thing to see here, he didn't come to condemn him. Many of us, if we were in that position, we would, we would go to Saul and say, here's the list of all the things that you have done or failed to do as king, and because of that, I am your replacement, and you are sitting in my chair. He doesn't come to condemn him. 
Samuel actually condemns him. God speaks through Samuel to tell Saul exactly what he did wrong. Samuel condemns him, but that's not David's place. It's not David's role. David's role is to serve Saul. Third thing to see here, David didn't come to divide the kingdom. You know, years later, David will have a son named Absalom, and he will seek to divide David's kingdom. And what he'll do is he'll sit outside the city gate, and anybody who wants to go in and see uh, David, to, to have David, you know, rule over some sort of affair or whatever, uh, Absalom will stand at the gate, and he'll say, I'm sorry, the king, he doesn't have time for you, but I do. I'll listen to you. He begins to, to form an alliance, and he begins to use this political maneuvering, and he begins to build up a team to go against David. David doesn't do that with Saul. David will never strike Saul. David will never do anything against the kingship of Saul. He won't form a team against Saul. He doesn't come to divide his kingdom. David is sent to serve Saul of all people. And he will spend 15 to 20 years being hunted by Saul. You see, this is the heart of God in David. You can imagine that uh, David being a, a, a song writer, that when he picked up the lyre in, in Saul's presence to play this, this harp was to Saul, you can imagine that he sang along with it. Now, it doesn't say that he sang in the text. Let me play about that. But the guy wrote like 70 plus songs. Like why wouldn't he sing? And can you imagine him picking up this harp and he's playing and, and he's playing Psalm 23. Here's Saul and he's in anguish, like the mental just duress and, and, and David sees this and he picks up his instrument and he begins to play. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Can you imagine the soothing effect that that could have on Saul as he's, he's experiencing this mental anguish? He restores my soul. He, may, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The, the door is open to repentance, Saul. Words that could heal Saul's heart. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Words that could address the anguish that Saul experienced and the guiding discipline of God's hand through all of that. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And he finishes by saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like, for, for a man in, in anguish, for, for, for David to pick up the lyre, to begin to sing this and to play this, and, 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 and to soothe and bring peace and bring calm you see, God didn't send David to confront or condemn or, 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 to, or to tear apart Saul. He sent him to serve Saul. He sent him to, to bring peace, to bring the calm into his messed up mind. God sent David to do that for Saul, of all people. Do you see the heart of God? There. David was far from perfect. David would uh, sin grievously eventually. He would. But he, unlike Saul, demonstrated a heart that really longed to be like God's. And because of this, God would make a covenant with him. 
God would promise him that one day someone would come from his line, the true anointed one, the true king, the true Messiah, that one day the Christ would come. And when we flip our Bibles over to the New Testament, there it is. And the Son of God enters in, and the Son of God takes on flesh, and the Son of God is born in a place called Bethlehem. And how does he enter in? Does he enter in like a mighty warrior, valiant and strong? Or does he enter in like a baby? a helpless child. Isaiah would say about him, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesse esteemed not his own son David and we esteemed not the son of God when he came to us. And he entered in and took on the form of a man, a plain, simple Ordinary man, yet perfect and righteous and holy. And did he come to attack us? We who are Saul's, we who are are trying to sit on our thrones and elevating ourselves and, and refuse to listen and refuse to submit to the reign and the rule of God over our lives, we are Saul's. And so how did, did, did the Son of God enter in to address us as Saul's? Did he come to attack us? He certainly could have. When Jesus is arrested, he he mentions this in Matthew 26. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you understand that that, that we could have been confronted with the assault of of a heavenly host because of our rebellion against a holy, righteous God? But that's not how he came. Instead, he came to serve Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to confront us, and he didn't come to condemn us. John three seventeen for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why? Because as the verse before, this verse says, for God so loved the world that he sent us his son. You see, God didn't send David to assault, confront, or condemn Saul. And Jesus, sent by God, didn't come to assault, condemn, or destroy us. Instead, he came to give his life as a ransom for us. And because of Jesus going to the cross and offering that holy, sinless, perfect life there, the wrath of God against our sin is dealt with and it's no more. Because of what he does at the cross, we have peace with God. Peace has been made. You see, Jesus brings the calm. Jesus brings the reconciliation between us and God and the reconciliation between us and one another. And just as God sent David to live with Saul and to serve Saul, just as God sent his son to live among us and serve us, God sends us. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Going on to say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Oftentimes as Christians, we forget that we've been sent. And we would prefer to remain in the pasture. But we've been sent. And oftentimes, we forget what message we've been sent to proclaim. 
because many of us think that we've been sent to proclaim destruction, devastation, condemnation, judgment. I want to make clear here. God judged Saul. God confronted him. God judged him. God removed him. But that was God's responsibility, not David's. We have been sent into the world to bring peace and to bring calm, to bring the gospel, to lead people to the cross. And it is God who will take it from there. But we've been sent not to bring judgment and condemnation and destruction. And yet so much of what comes out of our mouths are words like that. I want to begin to wrap this up, but I want to paint a picture for you. We go back to Psalm 23, verse 5, and David talks about a table. A table that is set before us by God in the presence of our enemies. A table set before us by God in the presence of our enemies. A table where we are chosen to sit at. We get to sit at this table and our cup overflows. But here is this picture of a a table and it's serene and it's beautiful and yet all around this table is chaos. As the world around us is full of defiance, it's full of defunding and dividing and erasing and canceling and villainizing and demonizing. Because the world around is all jockeying for position, for positions on thrones. And there's this chaos all around us of people who are trying to be God and to be in charge and to tear one another down. And yet here is a table in the midst of all of this. See, we've been called to bring the calm We've been called to be peacemakers. We've been called to bring the gospel of peace. The gospel that that declares peace between us and God. We have been called to bring the calm so that if any would would stop the, the chaos for a moment and desire to take a seat at this table, they would be welcome. We've been called to bring peace. It's to uh, another table now that I want us to turn our thoughts. This morning is is Communion Sunday, and uh, Kevin Craig is one of our elders, but he's also a house church shepherd, and he's going to come and uh, lead us in communion together. As we go into this communion, time of communion, I, I want us to look at uh, some scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 say, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. One of the words that stands out to me there in that passage is participation. Participation in the body of Christ. Participation in the blood of Christ. What we're doing here is, is to remember what Christ has done, uh, done for us, but is also connecting us. Uh, it is bringing us together. Next, I'll flip over to, to the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the words I want to highlight in this is remembrance. What we're doing here is, is remembering what Christ has done for us. And, and lastly, I want to draw your attention to that last verse, that last sentence. For as often as you drink this bread and, and drink, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is both a looking back and a looking forward. Looking back, proclaiming Christ's death, um, is remembering what he did. It is a looking back. But it's also looking forward to the day, to a day when, when Jesus comes back. Um, so it is a looking back and, and looking forward and, until he comes. So with that, I'm, I'm going to um, just lead us in, in taking, taking the bread Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then as we go to the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. On that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, uh, they, it was, you, could, you could say it was the first in, in, uh, instance of, of communion, of, um, of this. But it says that they ended that with, they, they went out with a song. Uh, Ryan will be leading us in, in song, singing. <laughs> 